This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, entrepreneur and AOL co-founder Steve Case discusses his book, The Rise of the Rest. He talks about his efforts to create startup opportunities, spur innovation, and create jobs around the country. He's interviewed by Atlantic Magazine CEO Nicholas Thompson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Great to be with you, Nick. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you, too. I've got to just say thank you. This was a fabulous read. Exciting, interesting, fun, and also a, uh, the best travel guide and the most optimistic travel guide to America that I've read in uh, quite some time. Well, you're very kind. <laughs> um, well, let's get this started. And in many ways, I think that this book starts in Hawaii, where you grew up. So let me begin the interview by asking you a little bit about your past, your life. Then I'm going to ask you about the book and the stories you tell. And then I'll ask you about the lessons from the book. But let's begin with Steve Case. How did the cases end up in Hawaii? And what did you learn from growing up there that would inform this book? I grew up uh, in, in, in Hawaii, born and raised there. Both of my parents were born and raised there as well, so our family goes back uh, really over a, over a century. I think they had sort of a pioneering spirit, so to go to this you know, new place, which was long before it was even a, a state, I think showed that sort of an entrepreneurial you know, kind of uh, interest and kind of pioneering, kind of leaning into the future. So that probably helped inform some of my thinking in terms of the journey initially around trying to stand up the internet, make it part of everyday life, and then more recently trying to level the playing field in terms of opportunity with, with, with Rise of the Rest. So you grew up in Hawaii, you graduate high school, and then you start America Online when you're fairly young, when you're 27, 28, is that right? Yeah, maybe a little, a little younger, mid-20, mid, mid I think 26 maybe. And where did you go to start it? Well, it's like I actually moved, when I graduated from college in 1980, I knew at the time I wanted to be involved with something around the Internet, something around this digital technology. I'd read a book in my senior year by Alvin Toffler, the futurist, uh, called The Third Wave, and he talked about this coming uh, kind of electronic frontier, and I was really quite mesmerized by it. So I knew I wanted to do that, but when I was graduating in 1980, there were not really Internet companies I could go to. And venture capitalists back then weren't, you know, backing 21-year-old, you know, kids with crazy ideas. So I ended up moving uh, to Ohio for a couple of years, worked for Procter & Gamble, then moved to Kansas for about a year, worked for Pizza Hut at the time, a division of, of PepsiCo. But all the while, I was trying to figure out how to get into this world. And then finally, uh, about 1983, I moved to the Washington, D.C. area, Northern Virginia, to join a startup uh, that, which at the time seemed exciting, but instantly was in free fall. A few months after I joined, it kind of was hitting the wall. Uh, and ultimately failed, but thankfully two of the people I met, uh, Jim Kimsey and Mark Seraf, and I had co-founded America Online uh, in 1985. So the part of the reason it was in Northern Virginia uh, was because that's where we happened to be because I moved here for that other other company. So it was a little bit by you know by accident. And was Northern Virginia a happening startup scene in 1985? No, it really was not. At the time, it really was obviously more of a government city, government contractors, lobbyists, things like that. You know, a lot of big established kind of legacy companies, but not a lot of new you know, kind of startup companies, really no venture capital, really no culture around you know, startups. So it did make it more difficult to get started, did make it more difficult to raise money. None of the money we raised to get started came from the, you know, the Washington, D.C. region. It came from New York and Boston and Toronto and Chicago and San Francisco. So uh, I think that was maybe my early you know, kind of learnings around it. It is a little harder to, to be an entrepreneur outside of some of the tech hubs like a, like a Silicon Valley. And we struggled for a number of years, almost didn't, you know, make it, but finally we were able to kind of uh, break through. 
And tell me about the name. It seems like the name, we all think of it as AOL now, but it's America Online, which I think ties in quite a bit to what you've been doing for all the years since then. Well, it was a little circuitous, like many entrepreneurial journeys when we started in 1985. By the way, at the time, only 3% of people were online, and those 3% were online an average of one hour a week. So it was definitely early days. And since we weren't able to raise much money, about a million dollars in venture capital, uh, we decided our only strategy was to partner with other companies, particularly personal computer manufacturers. So we partnered with a number of companies at the time that were big players, Commodore and Radio Shack and IBM and, and Apple, and launched a service called Apple Inc. Personal Edition, licensed the Apple brand name. But not long after we launched it, Apple decided they didn't really want to continue. They didn't like the idea that our company was licensing their brand name and so we had to negotiate a kind of a settlement on that. And we couldn't call it Apple Inc. anymore. So we had to call it something else and had a little internal contest. And that's America Online came out of that as something that, that uh, we could, we could that kind of describe what we were trying to do. We were trying to get America Online. We were trying to make the Internet something that would have broad mainstream appeal. I can't fathom Apple ever licensing its name out, but I suppose... Well, we got... We, apparently, apparently, they decided they couldn't either. Just we, 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 uh, I actually moved to San Francisco for about six months, and every day I went to the Apple offices trying to get this deal done. Finally did, uh, but then a couple of years later, not long after we launched it, they really did regret that, and, and so we had to go our separate ways. And it looked like a crisis. A lot of people thought maybe this would be the end of the company, but it actually was the beginning of this next chapter... Uh, when we really kind of had to stand on our own two feet, and, and that's when we launched uh, and accelerated the growth of America Online. They went public in 1992, the first Internet company to go public. Uh, and so it, you know, it, was, it was an interesting journey, and some of those lessons I do write about in, in the book because it does apply to this new generation of, of entrepreneurs building companies, including companies in places like Northern Virginia as opposed to just in California, New York, Massachusetts, where most of the money has been and most of the startups have been. Tell me how you raised a million dollars in the late 1980s. That's a it was hard. Sum, it was hard. Actually. Took a lot of time, and, and uh, we, we uh, you know, spent a lot of time meeting with people. And part of the reason we were able to raise it is we had established a partnership with one of the major computer companies at the time. People don't remember this company probably, but Commodore had a, a home computer called the Commodore 64, which was the, was the number one computer in the, in the country. And we they agreed that if we created a service for them, they would help market it. So that kind of de-risked it for the investors, and that ultimately led us to, you know, to be able to raise that money. I was in Northern Virginia, in Warrington, where you I now remember, live, playing on a Commodore 64 as a kid then. The first computer so, I used would have been 88, 89, little Commodore, playing football games on it. So. Yeah, exactly. It was a good little computer. Yeah, I think that's when I first experienced America online, uh, online as well. All right, so you run AOL, you, you buy Time Warner. You end up leaving, I believe, in 2003. Is that yep. correct? Yep. Well, and as part of the deal, when we announced the deal in 2000, I agreed to step aside as CEO, uh, and then, but stayed on as chair for a couple of years and then on the board, I think, for another year or two, but then decided it was time to you know, kind of you know, go our separate ways. We had different views of what, what should happen there, and that's when I started making investments in, in new companies, which led to starting an investment company called, called Revolution and ultimately led us on this journey towards investing in, in entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley, which ultimately led to the rise of the rest in this book. Yeah, well, let's, um, okay, so now let's quickly, why don't you quickly summarize the book um, in a minute, and then let's go back to some of the lessons you learned in that, in that period. So, Steve, what is this book about? This book is about, I think, what will be the next chapter in the American story, that I think innovation over the last couple of decades has really been largely limited to a few places Venture capital has largely been limited to a few places. Over the last decade, 75% of venture capital has gone to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. The other 47 states you know, are fighting over the remaining you know, 25%. As a result, people growing up in the middle of the country often felt they had to leave to go to the coast if they wanted to participate in the tech sector, the startup sector, the innovation economy. So it's kind of like a brain drain in many parts of the you know, the country. And the book is really about what's been happening, kind of bubbling under the surface. Most people have not been paying attention to it, uh, where un entrepreneurs in cities all across the country are starting companies that really are reimagining big industries uh, and in the process are creating jobs and hope and opportunity in, in these various you know, cities. So it, 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 after spending most of the decade traveling around the country, including with our Rise of the Rest bus and meeting hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs and being in dozens and dozens of cities, 
I just found it remarkable. And, and every time I'd go back and tell something, somebody about it, they would be surprised by it. So I said, well, I've got to write this book because this really <laughs> is, a, is something that, that uh, is an optimistic view of the future. And, and is, I think these, these cities and these entrepreneurs need their stories told. They would be surprised that tech investment and the tech industry is so centralized in a small number of areas, or they would be surprised by the opposite, which is that there's so much success around the country. Uh, they would be surprised that more cities, like dozens of cities that I cover in the book, really are starting to build strong startup communities. Most people still think it's you've got to be in San Francisco, you've got to be in New York, you've got to be in Boston, or you really don't have the ability to, to participate. And this book lays out the, what's happening in, in dozens of, of, of different cities. The other thing that was interesting, we did some joint research with PitchBook last year. And over the last 10 years, 1,400 new venture capital firms have started in these rise of the rest cities. So there is now more capital in more of these cities. The problem we were talking about when I was starting AOL in, in Northern Virginia, there really wasn't venture capital there. That's not you know, true anymore. Almost every city now has some, uh, some venture capital. So if an entrepreneurs have ideas, they see something they want to build, but they historically have felt they don't really have a shot because they're not in the right place. They're not in, say, Silicon Valley. Now, they can, the part of the reason to write the book is to inspire them to actually start those companies and do it wherever they are, uh, because that's now more possible than it was even just 10 years ago. So let's go back to this period, this 2000. I mean, the book really starts in 2014. So this period of 2003 to 2014, where you're coming to this idea, were you drawn to the idea of investing in cities around America for moral reasons for economic reasons? Did you think there was higher potential return? Did you think it was going to be good, to, good for America? Did you just want to go on an amazing bus tour with your wife around the whole country? Tell me what brought you to this idea. Uh, really all of the above. I did think it was a differentiated strategy. If most investors are investing in one place like Silicon Valley, investing in other places, you'd, you'd find opportunities that, that maybe other, others would uh, would miss. That was part of it. Also, I, we did realize because of the data around job creation that most of the jobs in the country are not created by small business or big business, but by new business, companies under five years, not just tech startups, by the way, many kinds of, uh, of startups in the food industry or the fashion industry or you, you, you name it. Uh, and so if most of the jobs are being created in, by new companies. Uh, how do we make it easier for the entrepreneurs in those places to do it? So there was a little bit of a, of a fairness uh, argument and kind of an impact. How do you level the playing field so everybody who has an idea has a shot of building a company, kind of a shot at the, the American dream? But it really accelerated uh, probably 11 or 12 years ago when I was asked to co-chair something in Washington, D.C. called the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And we made a number of recommendations. And one of them led the White House, then President Obama, to launch an initiative called Startup America, and he asked me to chair that initiative. And then I worked with him on the uh, Jobs Council, the Jobs and Competitiveness Council on Entrepreneurship Policy, including what led to the Jobs Act, which passed Congress about uh, 10 years ago. And that really got me more focused on uh, both the challenges, but also some of the opportunities. And the two ideas that have really been animating this for the last decade was the, the one I talked about earlier, most of the venture capital goes to a few places. And the second was most of the jobs are created by these new companies. So no wonder people in the middle of the country are feeling left out and left behind because often the disruption is destroying jobs in their community and new companies aren't being created that can offset that, at least in part. So we do have to change that. I think it's a really a national uh, imperative. Thankfully, Congress did pass some legislation this past uh, summer as part of the Chips and Science Act that as part of that also funded $10 billion towards regional hubs to accelerate what's happening in these rise of the rest cities. So I think this is a moment. I think it's really going to accelerate over the next uh, decade. When was the moment in this period? Was it your work with Obama where this shifted from being an important part of your life to being the sort of central part of your professional life? Yeah, I think so. I, I, when I started Revolution, I really wanted to back the next generation of entrepreneurs. I had uh, it was a, a wonderful time starting and building AOL, and to what at the time I left, it was the leading internet company in, in, in the country. Uh, and rather than starting on a company, I just started, decided to start a, a firm, investment firm, Revolution, to back the next generation of entrepreneurs across lots of different sectors. And it, even in the early days, it started with a little bit of a bias towards investing outside of Silicon Valley for the reasons I mentioned. But I do think that work on the, the Jobs Council and, and, and Startup America really you know, opened my eyes to both the problems that this was creating, but also the opportunities. And so that really has been the focus of, of really most of the past decade. And as I said, the part of the reason to write the book it was just remarkable stories on the, on the yeah. road, meeting these different 
people, seeing cities that are being renewed, revitalized, partly because of what the entrepreneurs are, are, are doing, and then t- going back and talking to people about it, and they kind of look like they look at me like they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I said, I, I got to tell these stories. These, these entrepreneurs deserve to have their stories told. These cities deserve to have their stories told. And I think everybody in America deserves to have a, a sense of what might be possible in the next 10 or 20 years, which would be uh, uh, kind of a more inclusive innovation economy that's not just a few people in a few places, but can be much more widespread. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, let's, uh, let's tell some of those stories. I mean, the book is structured. There are all kinds of lessons. There's a little bit about Steve's life, but the book is really structured with these stories. Different people, different cities, different companies, what you learned, what they need, why it works, why it doesn't work. So let's start with a couple of these stories. And I want to start, let's start, I spent last weekend in Nashville mm-hmm. and in Kentucky. So let's start with, um, tell me a little bit about App Harvest in Kentucky, and then let's talk a little bit about Nashville. I, mean, I could have chosen anywhere in the country, but that's where I just was. Let's start with App Harvest, and let's start with Kentucky. What did you learn? When were you there? Um, what did you see? Well, App Harvest really started as an idea. Entrepreneur Jonathan Webb basically learned what we were doing with Rise of the Rest when we particularly launched the Rise of the Rest Fund about five years ago. And just you know, kept coming to the office trying to get a meeting, and eventually, you know, some of our team met with him. And he had this idea of building what is now the largest indoor greenhouse in America, and doing it in eastern Kentucky, you know, kind of what's known as coal country, Appalachia. And he said, "This is an area that really has struggled for several decades. I believe we should build this greenhouse there, in part to create jobs there. He's created 600 jobs uh, there, which is which is terrific. But also because that location in eastern Kentucky." Seventy uh, percent of the U.S. population lives within a 24-hour drive. So if the greenhouse is growing fruits and vegetables, you actually can get them to market faster than if you were located in some other place. And he also wanted to design it with an eye towards sustainability. So it uses 90 percent less water than you know, traditional agriculture. So we heard this idea. We thought it was intriguing. We, like many ideas, we also recognized it was risky. We said, we'll put up the first $150,000 to get it started, but you have to raise another $150,000 from others. And he was able to do that. And we, you know, that company got started. Since then, it's gone on to raise several hundred million dollars and, and really is now emerging as a leader in what's called the ag tech sector. And in the process, really getting people in that area to start believing again. I remember when they were building this, this massive greenhouse, there was a a woman who came almost every day with like a lawn chair and sitting on the side of the construction site just watching it get built. And finally, somebody went up to her and said, why are you here? And kind of every day and said, well, I've been praying for decades that something would happen in this community that would reverse the decline. And I think this is it. And that's an example of an entrepreneur with an idea that create a healthier approach around agriculture, a more sustainable approach around agriculture, and do it in a place that really needed a boost, really needed a and more hope and opportunity. And so that's, a, that's one of the great stories in the book. I mean, in a $150,000 initial investment in a company that's now worth a couple billion dollars, that's a solid return, I would imagine, as well? Yes, and that's, and that's part of it. When we decided to make these investments, uh, we said to the, in, the investors we asked to participate, and we went out and talked to some of the, the most uh, celebrated entrepreneurs in the country, celebrated investors in the country, people like Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon, or Howard Schultz from uh, from Starbucks or Tory Burch, who started her, her own company, or investors like Ray Dalio, ran you know the largest hedge fund in in, in the world. Uh, Mike Milken, who's been an innovator in in the financial world. Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and several dozen others. And we said we want to launch this fund, this Rise the Rest fund. That's going to back these entrepreneurs all across the country in these rising cities. And our goal is to generate top tier returns, top tier investment returns. Because that would not just generate returns for you all, but also would signal to investors on the coast to pay more attention to the entrepreneurs in the middle uh, middle of the country. And so it has been very important, even though there are some broader impact uh, uh, ideas that we talked about in terms of job creation and economic vitality in 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 these communities. 
uh, first and foremost, we've got to generate great returns because that really will you know, get some of those investors paying less attention to the entrepreneurs in their own backyard, say, in Silicon Valley, and more attention to these dozens of cities all across the country that are showing real remarkable uh, momentum. And in fact, had you failed, had your you know, fund gone under and you lost all of your investors' money, you would have set back. No effort. question. And, and when we had the visit these cities and made these investments in these companies, part of it is what we, we really need you to be successful because if you're successful, we're going to be able to back more entrepreneurs and, and, and help support more uh, you know, communities. And so the pressure is on for the, not just for us as investors, but for the entrepreneurs we've backed to the Rise of Rest Fund. So far, we've backed over 200 uh, companies in 100 different, different cities. Well, let's go back to Eastern Kentucky and the woman sitting there watching it getting built. So let's talk through some of the structural advantages and disadvantages you have when you launch a company like this in Eastern Kentucky. So structural advantages, people know a lot about agriculture. Right. Labor is relatively inexpensive, centrally located, right? Transportation delivery matters a lot. What are the structural disadvantages? There's several. Number one is generally it is hard to raise the capital to get started, which is why getting more venture capital firms in in more of these cities is important, why getting coastal investors who have still most of the venture capital money paying attention to these cities is is, is important. So that's that's a key part of it. The second is talent. How do you get the talent uh, to, to help scale the company? And this is actually where the pandemic is I hate to say it, but kind of been helpful. It's sort of a silver lining of the of a terrible pandemic is now that people are able to work, at least some people more remotely, these companies in these rising cities can tap into talent that's used to kind of hyper growth of some companies in Silicon Valley or other places. So the talent is a is an important piece. And another one is is culture. You know, really a, a building a a community that's supportive of entrepreneurs, that's supportive of the risk these entrepreneurs are are, are willing to you know, to take. So, so those are some of the areas that are, that are challenging. It's getting a little bit better. When we first started this almost a decade ago, it was very hard to raise the capital. It was very hard to attract the talent. It was very hard to get the, the support within your own community to, to, to be able to launch and scale these companies. And we've made some progress, but clearly we have more progress to make in the, in the coming decade. Tell me a little bit about the culture piece. So there's a certain kind of work ethic in Silicon Valley, for better or worse. You know, work hard, play hard, right? There's I've spent a, a lot of time out there, and there's, a, there's some very distinct pieces of the tech ecosystem in Silicon Valley, some of which are extremely good for building profitable companies, some of which are maybe a little harmful. Tell me a little bit about the differences in the culture in a place like eastern Kentucky and Silicon Valley. Well, I think they both share a, a strong work ethic. The entrepreneurs yeah. in places like Silicon Valley absolutely you know, kind of work hard. The, the entrepreneurs in other parts of the country work hard as well. There's a sort of a middle-of-the-country work ethic uh, that's always been there. There's also, a, in the middle of the country, a little bit more of a humility, which is both good and bad. Sometimes the Silicon Valley you know, kind of entrepreneurs are a little too aggressive in some of the predictions they make, how they're going to you know, change, you know, change the world, these bold statements that are, you know, can be you know, kind of aspirational, but sometimes can come off as sort of almost cocky. Um, that doesn't happen in most of the cities that we, we've been you know, tracking and most of the companies I write about in the book, because they do tend to be a little bit more you know, humble. But a part of our message is they need to have a little more you know, hustle. They need to make sure they, they, they tell their stories. And, and there's probably a middle ground between those, those two. You need to be you know, convincing people to believe in your idea, believe in your company, whether it's attracting employees or attracting investors or attracting you know, uh, partners or attracting you know, customers. You need to be out telling your story. And sometimes it does mean you have to beat your chest a little bit more than maybe you're comfortable with. Uh, so that's, you know, those are some of the cultural differences. Yeah. All right. Let's go a little uh, south and west from eastern Kentucky down to Nashville. Now, Nashville is a fascinating case because it's a city in the middle of the country that has done exceptionally well for a long time because it has the music industry, because it has so much else down there. Tell me the differences between finding good startups in Nashville and finding it in a, in a place like eastern Kentucky. Well, when we did our first bus tour, our first Rise of Rest bus tour, which was a little over eight years ago, uh, Nashville was one of the stops. We started in Detroit, then we went to Pittsburgh, then we went to Cincinnati, then we, we ended, ended the tour in, in, in Nashville. And even then, you can see something was bubbling. They did have some big industry. You mentioned the music industry. Also, there are a lot of big healthcare companies uh, there, HDA being one of the major ones. Uh, and so there, those were the two sectors that were particularly uh, you know, strong there. But there was a lot of work, including some of the things that came out of that Startup America partnership I, I mentioned I, I chaired, that, that people took advantage of that. One of the first chapters to launch was Startup Tennessee. 
you know, the governor at the time, uh, Governor Haslam, really was focused on this and really built out a structure to support many cities in, in, in Tennessee. There are four major hubs that they were focused on, and Nashville was one of them. And, and we, we remember when we were on that tour, going to a building that was still uh, being finished that was kind of an entrepreneur center to really yeah, give a place for entrepreneurs to come together in, in Nashville. I've gone back uh, you know, a number of times since, really every year or two, and it has been amazing to see the growth. And you can tell that in part because suddenly in the downtown Nashville area, there are cranes building new buildings uh, in places that uh, even 10 years ago were, were not, uh, not, not very popular. And that's what's so, poss- you know, so great about these entrepreneurs. When you're launching these companies and creating the jobs, it's not just the jobs within the companies themselves. It's the broader jobs in the community. For every yeah. job in a startup, there are usually about five other jobs in the community because people are building houses or new restaurants are being opened, and it has an uplifting impact more broadly in, in the community. Do you actually, you know, one of the critiques of the tech industry, right, is that it creates, for every dollar of value it creates, it creates relatively few jobs, right, for market capitalization size of Apple, the number of people who work there compared to market capitalization of General Motors. We've all seen those stats. The tech industry employs far fewer people and generates more output per person. Obviously, if you're building physical goods, like App Harvest, right, where you're building, you know, greenhouses, you're going to need uh, a lot more labor or create a lot more jobs. Tell me of the different kinds of investments you make. Which ones generate the most jobs for community and which ones generate relatively the fewest? Well, as you say, the, the purer software companies uh, tend to have fewer jobs, and we've certainly invested in some of those. The, the, but the bigger trend, particularly in these rise of red cities, are more tech-enabled jobs where tech is part of it, but there's other things going on. I'll just give you a few examples. We backed a company in Washington, D.C., probably seven years ago, called Sweetgreen, which is a fast, casual kind of restaurant you know, concept. But they use technology to manage sort of a supply chain because they're lo- working you know, with local farmers. And they also use technology to make it easier for people to order. And you know, so they, they use an app on, on phones for people to order, whether it be to pick up or get delivery. Uh, and that company started with just uh, you know, a couple dozen people. Now they have, I think, six or 7,000 people. And so technology is enabling that, uh, that kind of uh, innovation to happen. In Detroit, I mentioned that was the first city uh, that we visited with our Rise of Rest you know, bus. And it's an interesting city because 100 years ago, in many ways, Detroit was Silicon Valley. It was the most yeah. innovative city in the country. It was the fifth largest city in, in the country, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And then over the last half century, lost 60% of its population and the year before we rolled in with our Rise to Rest bus, the city of Detroit went bankrupt. It had been gone from being kind of the leader of the pack to really struggling. And what's happened in the last decade is it's a rebirth, a rejuvenation, a renewal, and particularly in the downtown Detroit area. And I'll give you two examples. One is a company called Shinola, and the other is a company called StockX. Neither in, existed 10 years ago, and both now have more than 1,000 employees in in the downtown Detroit area. So those are some of the companies that we're backing that are creating innovations, new products, new services, new technologies, new ways to do things, but in the process also creating significant jobs within the companies as well as broader jobs within the community. Let's talk a little bit about Pittsburgh, which you mentioned a minute ago, because it's a, it's a unique, um, or not unique, but it's a somewhat unique situation in that it's a you know, former industrial city where many of much of the work went away, but it also happens to have a university which pioneered, was a pioneer in artificial intelligence, one of the most important underlying technologies of the decades to come. You talk about Duolingo, but talk a little bit about what has come out of Pittsburgh and why and what's particularly interesting about that example. Well, the interesting thing about Pittsburgh is it kind of had a similar backstory to, to Detroit over 100 years ago. Pittsburgh was kind of powering the Industrial Revolution. You know, steel was a key part of that, and Pittsburgh was the, you know, kind of the capital of, of steel production. And so it, too, over 100 years ago, was, was booming. But then it started struggling. You saw you know, global competition in the, in the steel industry, and, and Pittsburgh was struggling. But two things impacted the, 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 the trajectory there in a very helpful way. One was a, a, a university, Carnegie Mellon there, as you said, very strong in AI, very strong in robotics, and, and was able to attract and retain people to, to focus on those industries. So that strong university was critical. And, but also about 40 years or so ago, leaders in the community, the mayors, the CEOs of the big companies, some of the big foundations got together and said, we need to have a brighter future for Pittsburgh. Some of our big companies are going to be in decline. And the data, as you know, is about half of the Fortune 500 companies turn over every 25 years. So you can't just be relying on your big companies. You have to be launching new companies. 
And the Pittsburgh community came together in a collaborative way and said, here are a number of things we need to do with real intentionality and real urgency. So as a result, Pittsburgh was able to recover and then you know, kind of grow in ways that other cities like Detroit didn't. And now Detroit is on that trajectory as well. Uh, but but you know, the Pittsburgh story and the success of companies like uh, Duolingo is in part because of Carnegie Mellon and that university as sort of an anchor, but also because the community really made backing new companies, backing new technologies a real priority. Well, that gets to one of the you know, most interesting and important parts of the book I noticed. It's on page 38, I think, where you talk about the wheel with seven spokes, right? And these are the seven elements that are most helpful, not all completely essential in every situation, but startups, investors, universities, government, corporations, startup support, local media. Talk to me a little bit about the wheel framework and what a city can do to make sure it has seven, all seven spokes or what a city should do if they don't have a strong local media ecosystem, if they don't have a strong university nearby. Well, I should say that none of the cities really have it all working perfectly. Some are strong in other areas, you know, one area or another area, but, but they all recognize the importance of these different uh, attributes. And we learned this when we were hitting the road and visiting different cities, and we were trying to you know, kind of have some takeaways from it and ultimately publish some research on what's working in, in Rise of Rest cities. And, and we identified, as you mentioned, you know, some of these you know, key seven aspects, but the, the, the wheel aspect is the most important. It's how do you get collaboration, integration, synergy across all of those. And even the reason we come to town with a bus, it initially was more of a, a, almost like a media prop because it was an Americana road trip to see entrepreneurs and visit, visit city. We thought that would get attention, and we you know, did at one point a few years ago, 60 Minutes follows around and did a story on it. So it was helpful on that front. But it ended up being much more helpful as a way to get people together in a community, almost like a convening platform. We're driving around town and we're introducing people to each other on the bus who are living in the same city but often don't know each other or don't know what other people are, are doing. And so that driving that collaboration is the most important point. Now, if there are particular aspects that you're not as strong in as a city, there usually then is a commitment to strengthen that. And we saw a number of, of cities do this uh, several years ago when Amazon had this kind of national contest for its second headquarters, and 235 cities applied, only one, actually, Northern Virginia, not far from where we, we started AOL almost four decades ago, ended up uh, you know, prevailing. But the others, during the process of applying for that, really made a case for what makes them strong, but also identified some areas where they were weak and needed more attention. And the, the cities that are really are, are focusing on building on the strengths and addressing some of the areas of, of weakness are the ones that really are positioned for growth over the next decade. Yeah. So tell me what cities get wrong. If I'm a mayor, every mayor, I'm sure, wants your bus to come, wants funding to come to the startups. Everybody wants startups because it's young people, it's money, it's innovation. What do mayors sometimes get wrong when they try to either build out these seven spokes or when they try to create a startup ecosystem? Well, I'd say two things. One is historically what mayors and governors have gotten wrong, and it's, and it's changing, but historically uh, was they were focusing economic uh, development on big companies, not on new companies. So they're yeah. trying to get a big company to move a, you know, open a factory or move their headquarters or something like that, which is which kind of generally the deals they cut are not that you know, economically sound, and it's sort of zero sum for the country. One state might win, one state might lose, but it doesn't really help the the country and more more of the you know, leaders, whether it be at the state level or the, or the more the local level, recognize that and are trying to address that and put more attention on on the new companies. But they also have to you know, recognize that it needs to be sort of this grassroots entrepreneurial led effort. If it's sort of too much top down, if, you know, if it's too much government you know, centric, it generally doesn't work. Sometimes, for example, people have funded the creation of a building. But, but, and, but didn't really have a strategy to get people to move into the building, and it ends up being not that effective as, as sort of a, a gathering place. So the, you know, the focus on new companies is important. The championing of entrepreneurs is, 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 is very important. The, using the, the platform you have as a governor or a, a mayor to bring people together and get the university working with the big companies, working with the small companies is, 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 is really the way to do it. Let's talk a little bit about Indianapolis because there's a, a fascinating bit of that story. Both you tell the story about 120 Water, but also you, you mentioned that Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue University, noticed a gap in the pipeline of students uh, in Indianapolis. And tell me a little bit about how he closed that gap and tell me a little bit about what happened in Indianapolis. Now, Mitch Daniels has been a, you know, an innovative you know, uh, college or you know, university president and really part of that has been trying to make it more accessible. And you know, Mitch in particular was 
looking to find people in different communities, including some disadvantaged communities, and giving them a pathway, sort of an on-ramp into the university to, to focus on coding or other kinds of, of skills and try to create a more inclusive innovation economy. And that was critically helpful. The other thing that was critically helpful in, in Indianapolis was a tentpole company. Uh, this idea of tentpole companies is essentially some company emerges and has success and that triggers other success. It's sort of momentum begets momentum. I saw that in the Northern Virginia area with the success of AOL. More recently, you saw that in places like Seattle with the success of Microsoft and, and then Amazon. But Indianapolis has benefited from that. There was a company, a software company called Exact Target, that was acquired by Salesforce, a Silicon Valley uh, you know, software company, for I think it was $2.5 billion. And now Salesforce has over 2,000 employees in Indianapolis. It's their second largest office outside of San Francisco itself. But some of the early employees of that company, Exact Target, including Scott Dorsey, the founder, went off and started new companies, launched an accelerator and a venture fund. And now dozens of other companies are flourishing in, in Indianapolis. And 120 Water is an example of that. The founder, Megan Glover, had some experience at Exact Target, but she also was a mom living in a suburb of Indianapolis. And she was very concerned, this is now five, six years ago, about water quality. At the time, uh, as I'm sure you know, Flint, Michigan had this big water crisis, uh, and, and she was worried that maybe the water her, her kids were drinking was unsafe. And so she called the water company and said, I want to get my water tested. And they said, well, we don't do that for consumers, which kind of surprised her. Uh, and so she decided to start a company, 120 Water, to uh, provide a convenient, affordable way for, for anybody to get their water tested. And now she's gone on to, to also do that with, for cities like San Francisco are relying on 120 Water technology. And part of the reason she was able to do that in Indianapolis is she had some experience at Exact Target and had some connections with other people in the Indianapolis community. So when she had that idea, she had an ability to do something about it. So tell me, let's talk a little bit about immigration, which I know is an issue that you've worked on. Many of the most important startup founders in America are immigrants. Many of the CEOs of the largest companies in America are immigrants. Immigrants provide a lot of the energy for the startup ecosystem, for the whole tech ecosystem. Are immigrants as likely to go to rise of the rest cities as they are to Boston, New York, San Francisco? Yes. First of all, I would say that, you know, that we do have a real challenge, I think, as a nation uh, to make sure we remain the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, in a world where we're seeing entrepreneurship globalize. You know, 25 years ago, over 90% of global venture capital was invested in the United States. Now it's under 50%. So we have to recognize that, that, that people are paying attention and they're trying to lead in some of the technology of the future and industries of the future. Meanwhile, we have made it more difficult for people to come to the United States and more difficult for people to stay in the United States. Uh, and that's resulting in some of the companies that would have started here and created jobs here starting in other places. So we really do need to you know, pass some immigration uh, reform. And there were, we got close in this past summer uh, provision uh, around the startup visa was in legislation that was ended up being the Chips and Science Act, but wasn't there at the, you know, when it finally got done. Hopefully, uh, sooner rather than later, we'll get some immigration reform passed, particularly around this, this area of kind of the entrepreneurs who can create some of the you know, companies of the future and clearly are job makers, not, not job takers. But to your specific question, Immigrants have often come to different parts of the, the country, not just some of the big cities like uh, New York or San Francisco. And you actually see different uh, immigrant populations from different regions or different countries you know, kind of coalescing in particular cities. I remember when we were in Minneapolis a number of years ago with our bus. There were a number of immigrants that had come, I think it was from Somalia, and gathered there. Because once some come there, then other people hear about it and they come there as well. So there are many cities in this country that have been very welcoming to the immigrants recognize they play an important role in the community, recognize particularly the, the ones who end up starting companies can create jobs for others in, in, in the community. And so hopefully we will you know, be able to move forward with legislation in, in Washington, D.C. I recognize immigration is complicated and multifaceted and, and very sensitive and there are issues around the border and issues around dreamers and so forth. But this, in particular this issue around trying to make sure we continue to be a magnet for the people that are going to start some of the companies of the future. And as you said, about 40% of the Fortune 500 companies, the largest companies in America, were started by immigrants. They're children of immigrants. And that's been part of the American story. We need to make sure that that continues. All right. So give me a narrow, specific policy recommendation, not for an overarching immigration reform bill, but 
what are the specific provisions that would be most important to get people who are most likely to start companies or become essential employees at American startups? What immigration law needs to change? Well, there are many facets. I actually testified in, in the Senate about nine years ago on, on this, and sadly nothing happened then and nothing's really happened since. There are a couple in particular. Again, there are many facets of immigration. One, the startup visa provision basically is stapling a green card to a PhD. So people who come here and are attending one of our universities and get a degree and have an idea to start a you know, company or able to, to stay here. Another is looking at some of the systems like in Canada, which are more points-based, so that based on, on merit and what you're likely to contribute to that community or contribute to the country, you can get you know, kind of fast track. So those, those are a couple of the things that are particularly in this area around high-skilled immigration and, and uh, sort of entrepreneurship. How much do you worry that rising political tensions between the United States and China will make it harder for Chinese immigrants who could be tech job creators to come here and to work here? Oh, for sure, it, it, it's going to be hard. I mean, they, they, I think there's a recognition now that China, maybe 25, 30 years ago, people thought was, was really good at making stuff, but not good at inventing stuff. So, you know, maybe Apple would come up with the ideas in Silicon Valley, but China would be good at, at stamping out, you know, the iPads. And that was true for many years, but China has been investing very heavily in some of the, you know, key technologies of the future, including artificial intelligence and, and robotics, and has been becoming much more uh, successful in creating and innovating. And so it really is a, a threat. And, and I think people now recognize that there really is a level of competition between the United States and, and China that's intensified. And there is risk that China or other countries might end up leading in this next wave. I think the best way to deal with that is to, number one, have smart immigration policy, not just with people from China, but people from all over the world. So we get some of those people to start companies uh, here. But also, and it ties in with the, with the Rise of the Rest uh, book, is not just be focusing on a few places like Silicon Valley and New York or, or Boston, but backing entrepreneurs all over the country. It's more, more trying more things, more shots on goal, likely will result in identifying some of the ideas of the future, technology of the future, companies of the future, even industries of, of the future. And the process, we also can help renew and rebuild many of these communities that have built, felt kind of left, left out of it in the last you know, couple of decades. Well, let's, uh, let's go back for a minute to stories, and let's go to Tulsa, which is where near where my father grew up. And uh, in Tulsa, you talk about a company that I believe is the only company in the book started by an intern, or at least an action started by an intern. Tulsa responds. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was, it was an intern working at a venture capital firm. This was the early days of, of the pandemic, and they figured out a way to mobilize the Tulsa community to be helpful at that particular juncture, to drive more community connection, collaboration in that, in that community. And Tulsa is another great example of a of a, a city that's done a lot of things right in the last you know, decade, and including trying to build new kind of amenities to attract people uh, to the city, including a Woody Guthrie Museum, more recently a Bob Dylan Museum, built the largest privately funded uh, park in the country, almost a half a billion dollars, a you know, place called the Gathering Place that's really you know, remarkable, and also back a, a whole new generation of, of uh, startups. Something else they did, which was quite interesting five, six years ago, was basically try to position Tulsa as the place for remote workers to go to. This is long before the pandemic. They created a, a, essentially an incentive. I think it was $10,000 if you'd move to, to Tulsa and work remotely from Tulsa some, with some other company. And they had remarkable success. A lot of people that came there temporarily ended up moving there permanently, buying houses and being parts of that community. So that's the kind of innovation you're seeing in, in different cities all around the country. Let's talk a little bit about the changes that came about because of the pandemic, which you know shook this up um, in all kinds of ways. Explain to me, you have a sort of a three-part theory about the kinds of cities post-pandemic that are most likely to thrive and create great startup ecosystems. Um, tell me a little bit about what you look for in a city now that is different from what you would have looked for in a city five years ago. Well, first of all, I think we just should acknowledge that even though the pandemic has had so much tragedy, there's also is a little bit of a, a silver lining to it, which is kind of this unlock that the, the sense that you had to be in a certain place like San Francisco or New York City. Otherwise, you really wouldn't have a, a, a good career. People now re recognize they have more more flexibility in terms of where they work and how they work and where they live and how they live. And that's really going to accelerate remote work, et cetera, accelerated more companies thinking about hybrid structures in terms of work. And it'll still take a number of years to settle it out, but I think it's, a, it's sort of an unlock, and the sense he had to be in a certain place is really not there. I think we kind of hit peak Silicon Valley probably three years ago, and it will still be the leader of the pack, but much less uh, 
you know, dominant. And so now it creates new opportunities for people to decide where they want to start their company. And one of the things that we've been watching that's been quite interesting and it's accelerated uh, in the last several years is people recognizing, even though historically the sense was most of the innovation, most of the venture capital was in a place like Silicon Valley, if you're, you're trying to target a particular industry, you're trying to reimagine a particular industry, partnerships are likely to be critical to being successful there. It's not just writing code, it's getting people... For example, in healthcare, getting hospitals to integrate it and doctors and nurses to use it and health plans to pay for it, that's really where the kind of rubber meets the road. So as a result, you're seeing entrepreneurs leave some of these coastal hubs to go to other places, in part because maybe they want to be there for family reasons, in part because there are some cost of living advantage, sometimes some, some, some tax advantages. Sometimes there's amenities they want to be part of, skiing or hiking or, or, or what have you. But also the domain expertise they need to be successful is, is, is there. A couple examples, there is an a, a entrepreneur now in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Carter Malloy, started a company called AcreTrader. He actually had the idea for AcreTrader, which is a platform to allow people to invest in farmland. They can diversify and, and invest in, in, on a piece of farmland, and, and farmers can raise capital to, to invest and, and expand. He had that idea when he was working for a hedge fund in San Francisco, but he decided he'd be more successful building that company in Arkansas because that's where the farmers are. So he moved to, to Fayetteville and the company's going you know, gangbusters. And it's an example of a benefit to being in one of these rise of rest cities as opposed to historically being viewed as a, as a problem. Another one, a company in Chattanooga, Tennessee called Freight Waves has built a, a platform, almost like a Bloomberg data platform for the trucking and logistics industry. And I didn't know this though. we were in Chattanooga with our Rise Rust bus, but most of the big trucking companies in America are headquartered in Chattanooga. So if you're building Bloomberg for trucking, better to be in Chattanooga than to be in you know, New York City. And so there, there are more and more examples that we're seeing uh, that are flourishing because of the need for domain expertise. And more cities, and you know, some people have called them Zoom towns, have, are, that have adjacency to big gateway superstar cities, but maybe an hour away, hour and a half away, suddenly there's opportunities for people there because instead of having to commute every day, and maybe that commute would be too long, they might just be commuting two or three days a, a week, and it, suddenly it makes it more more possible. So you're seeing kind of real estate even appreciate in the in these outer areas around some of these big superstar cities, which I think is encouraging. It takes a little of the pressure off the, the core of the city and distributes you know, people uh, more broadly in, in the regions. Tell me a little bit about some of the technologies you've been most excited about. I was interested... Um, obviously, cryptocurrencies have been in the news quite a bit recently, both specifically and you know over the last few years. But there's almost nothing in the book uh, on Web3 on crypto, which is, of course, one of the areas where many venture capitals are putting a lot of time, effort, and money. Explain which technologies you think have been overhyped and that you've avoided, and which ones are just not really present in the cities that you're looking at. Well, I think there's some presence of Web3 and crypto in some of these cities, but the, the, those, it, mo most of that activity has been more centralized in places like, uh, like Silicon Valley. Uh, there are also cities that have emerged, like Miami and is, is doing some things particularly around that and trying to be positioned as sort of a, a crypto you know, city. So we're starting to see it distributed a little bit more broadly. But to me, it's not about any one technology. It's really how technologies, different technologies, kind of come together, kind of sort of converge and collide with different business models and ways of thinking of things to reimagine some of the most important aspects of our lives and some of the you know the biggest interests. I mentioned you know healthcare, but also food and agriculture is being reimagined. Financial services are being reimagined. Even sports with sports technologies and are are being uh, reimagined. You're seeing a lot of things that really are up for grabs in this next era, and that's where I think these rise of the risk cities are going to have. Advantage, not just in terms of healthcare or agriculture. We talked about uh, you know, companies there that are doing things, but also some of these other other sectors. So it's not about any particular technology. That's only moderately interesting to me. It's how they how they really connect with these different uh, industries in, in unique ways. That to me was also the the fascinating thing. Even in the early days of, of America Online, AOL, the Internet. It wasn't about the underlying technologies that was interesting. It was well how these technologies could be used to create this platform that allows people to communicate in new ways, get information in new ways, learn in, in new ways. I think now that we're moving into this third wave of the Internet, when the, kind of the Internet meets the real world, that's where the, the puck is going. And I think the rise of the rest cities are, are, are going to be advantaged. Because they have a lot of real-world experience and because they're bringing in technological expertise? 
because they have expertise in those sectors that's going to be increasingly important and can now marry it with access to capital and talent, which historically was, was a limiting factor. Well, right. So that, like, let's talk about trucking for, for a second, because that's extremely interesting, where in the future we'll most likely have some kind of self-driving, more highly automated trucks. And then the question is whether the companies that do that will be the companies that have the expertise in the software, right, or the companies that will have the expertise in you know, the physical trucks, right? We've seen this in all kinds of competitions, right. right? The people who make the locks. Is it the physical companies or is it the software companies, right? Who's going to win the battle over the locks? Tell me how you think the trucking industry and the most important players will play out over the next 10, 15 years. Well, I think it's going to be a mix. I think and understanding something about the industries is going to be critically important and having trust in, with people who are incumbents in the industry to make some of these decisions around partnerships are going to be critically important. But you also have to marry that with fresh insights. So the, they're sort of thinking outside the box, not knowing too much about the industry is a good way to get going. But if you're really going to play a disruptive role in some of these sectors, whether it be trucking or, or healthcare, you've got to have partnerships with the key you know, players in those, in those uh, you know, sectors. As I mentioned, in the area of healthcare, the, the technology is kind of the table stakes to you know, get you going. And there are a lot of companies that have created interesting technology but not been able to get others to adopt them. There's a company in the healthcare space called Tempest that we backed in, in Chicago that's growing you know, rapidly, focused on precision medicine, initially focused on cancer. When you get diagnosed with cancer, knowing more precisely what's going on with your particular situation, so there's more precise kind of a recommendation in terms of what therapies would, would work. They've been able to establish partnerships with most of the major cancer hospitals in, in the country, including also many of the major you know, pharma companies in, in the country. I think they've been advantaged because they've been in, in Chicago and have a bias towards partnership. And some of the partners they've established, partnerships they've established, there's a little more skepticism about some of the players in, in, in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what you've learned in this journey, right? You start heading out on your bus in eight years, and you've seen a lot of great things. I think I would presume you're much more optimistic about the country than you were eight years ago, which might be different from some other people who've been observing the country for the last eight years. Tell me what's happened to you over the last eight years that's surprised you. Well, I have become more optimistic. I, I think uh, when you, you know, get out of the bubble here in Washington, D.C., or, or maybe in New York City or in, in San Francisco, where there, there's sort of a you know, kind of an ecosystem here, they call it kind of inside the beltway kind of uh, mentality. There's also an inside Silicon Valley mentality. There's sort of an inside New York City kind of mentality. And you kind of hit the road and, and see America from, from uh, you know, kind of the, you know, the vantage point of being in a, in a bus. You just meet people and, and see things that they otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. And having now been on this journey for, you know, the better part of a, a decade, I, I am, you know, very optimistic about what's happening in these cities. And as a result, more optimistic about what can happen in the country. I know it's complicated. I know we have a, even this recent election, there's sort of this hyper-partisanship, uh, which is, which is you know, disappointing to see. But when you're in these communities, it's a different discussion. When we're on the bus, it's a different discussion. We do invite you know, political leaders, governors, mayors, senators, others to, to join us on these bus tours. Uh, but, but the focus is really on backing these entrepreneurs, creating jobs in these communities. And that's not a partisan issue. Even when I worked 10 years ago on the the Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act, the Jobs Act, that was a bipartisan bill. This is one of the few issues that really unites the country. So having more focus on innovation, more focus on entrepreneurship, more focus on leveling the playing field, more focus on creating more jobs and for more people in more parts of the, you know, the, the country, I think is something that really is, there are reasons to be you know, optimistic. But at the same time, I, I do bring a certain urgency to this because I know there's still a lot of people, including probably some people listening to this, that still do feel left out, still do feel uh, kind of left behind. And uh, if you look at the history, and I write about this in the book, some sectors like farming, like agriculture, at one point over 90% of us worked on farms. Now it's less than 2%. And the reason is technology made it possible to grow more food with fewer people at lower cost which actually is a good thing if you're trying to feed the world, but a bad thing if you're just concerned about jobs and unemployment. But we were able to pivot and move people from farms to factories, retrain people as, as we move from the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution, and made that transition relatively smoothly. The, the transition from the industrial revolution to the digital revolution, the technology revolution, has been much rockier, which is why we need to be backing more of these companies, not just on the coast, but all across the country.
Well, that leads to an interesting point, right? You've been in many different cities. You've been in you know many different urban areas. Let's let's um, you know, we're heading towards the end here. But tell me a story about a startup in you know not in Nashville, right? Not in Pittsburgh, but in the sort of the most rural area that you supported and what it brought and why it worked. Well, one of the rural ones we talked about, App Harvest in, in eastern Kentucky, yeah. that, that was one that really was an idea on a napkin now has 600 jobs in, in eastern Kentucky. We've also backed uh, you know, companies in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, you know, Wichita, you know, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, so it's fairly, fairly broad. And we've also backed a lot of companies in what some people think of as these, these second-tier cities that are doing remarkable things, including things that most people would assume are happening in, in Silicon Valley. When I recently visited a company in Atlanta called Hermius, uh, you kind of spun out of Georgia Tech, which is one of the great universities in, in, in the country. And they're focused on Mach 5 engines. So you can get from Atlanta to Europe in 90 minutes. And the Air Force is a big customer there. They, Atlanta is now emerging as an aerospace hub. And that wasn't you know, you know, looking like it was going to be possible even 10 or 20 years ago. And Georgia Tech, because they have expertise in that particular sector, are advantaged. So you're seeing companies like Hermes emerge in, 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 in places like that. So there's, there's just dozens and dozens of these stories. The hardest part about writing the book was trying, as you know, having been in the business of writing books, is you start with a lot of content. And for us, we started with hundreds of great stories about dozens of great cities, and we had to whittle it down to really focus on the very best entrepreneurs, the very best kind of entrepreneurial stories, and, and, and highlight, showcase some of the cities, but, but leave a lot on the, on the cutting room floor. What is the most surprising thing that you have um, learned during this journey? What did you, if I were to go back to Steve eight years ago, Steve today, tell me something dramatically different in the way you think about tech in America? Well, I think it builds on some of the instinct I might have had eight or ten years ago around this more inclusive innovation economy, you know, the opportunity in these rising cities. I just think I have more conviction now, and I think we, we have hit a tipping point. And some of that was evident pre-pandemic, but as we discussed, some of it accelerated because of the pandemic. And it's kind of interesting because we started this interview talking about you know, my own journey as an entrepreneur starting a AOL almost almost 40 years ago. When I think back on that, the first 10 years was really hard. And when we first started talking about the idea of the internet and getting America online, most people were skeptical. Most people thought that most normal people would never want to get online. They'd have a, never have a need to get online. I remember people would, used to say things like, why do you think people are going to buy a computer to, to sit down in front of a keyboard and type a message when they can just pick up the phone and call somebody? So there was just a lot of skepticism. And for that decade, it was a struggle at trying to convince people that this really was an idea that had merit. And then suddenly it took off. In the second decade, things really accelerated. I remember we, it took us 10 years to get 200,000 customers. And the next 10 years, we had 25 million customers. So it was a, you know, this hockey stick. I feel the same way, kind of deja vu all over again with the rise of rest. This first decade this has been a struggle. When we first started talking about the idea of building great entrepreneurial companies outside of places like uh, Silicon Valley and the heartland of uh, America, many people were skeptical. I could, I could tell. I, I watched their faces when I was talking about it, and they were like, well, okay, well, seems like a good idea, but good luck. It's, you know, it seems, seems unlikely that you're actually going to have any success there. And we started seeing that kind of shift a little bit. And then with the pandemic, things have uh, accelerated. So I think this next 10 years is when we're really going to see a, an acceleration of this. That real, these rise of the rest cities are going to really rise. Some of these companies I write about in the book are going to have great, you know, great success. It's going to surprise people in these communities. It's going to surprise people all across the country. And I think it will change the narrative around innovation, entrepreneurship, job creation, which won't just benefit the specific companies or the specific cities, but I do think has the opportunity to, to benefit, maybe even in some small way, unite a very divided country. Do you think that you'll still be doing this the next 10 years? Do you think I think I will. I think, I think we've made progress, but there's still a lot, a lot we need to do. So the journey will continue. And the bus will keep on rolling. The bus right, will last, keep rolling. Last question. Give us one final thought, one thing we haven't covered in this interview that you want your viewers to remember and know about the rise of the rest and the, the work that you've been doing. Well, I'd say, number one, if people out there are listening or watching this and you have an idea, you have something that you see in your, your, your life that you think could be done better, because ultimately what entrepreneurs do is they see a problem and decide it's an opportunity. 
instead of just looking at the problem, they take action and they, and they, and they start a company to do something about it. If you have an insight like that, now is the time to start that company. And you now can do it pretty much no matter where you are and tap into capital and talent and you know, some of the networks that we, we talked about. So I hope this book will inspire some people who have those ideas to start something. I hope it will inspire people who are investing in new companies to focus more broadly, not just on the coast, but all across the country. And I hope everybody in these communities will recognize that entrepreneurs are really taking the risk of starting these companies and support them, mentor them, coach them, maybe invest in them, maybe be their, their customers. If these communities come together to support these entrepreneurs, the communities will rise and have more growth and opportunity and will slow that brain drain of people leaving these different cities, including many people whose family members left where they grew up to go to other places because they felt the opportunity was better in those other places. How do we change that dynamic, change that narrative so there's less of a brain drain, more of a boomerang of people returning, which will renew and revitalize these communities and has the potential, as I said before, to really rebuild and unite the country. All right. Well, I'm going to take off this microphone, leave this office in New York City, go back to New Hampshire where I used to live and go start a company All right, this afternoon. Next, I, well, you, you go for it. And I'm ready to come on the bus and, and hear your pitch and maybe invest in your startup. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. It was a great pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>